3: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got Jeremy Waldman. He is the principal at Hudson Projects. We've also got Ben Amzaleg, principal at Framework Real Estate Group. Now, this is an interesting episode. We've got a developer and then somebody who markets projects for the developer. And you know what? Both younger guys, and when I say younger, that's because I'm... Hitting fifty-five now, but uh, and, and not driving—not your speed. No, although you can't drive fifty-five either. But yeah, you're right. You're right. Younger guys making big moves in the city, big moves in
2: East Van. Jeremy's one of the men behind Assembly, that project in Strathcona that has literally hit it out of the park. Uh, three this units late left spring. after launch date. Three three units left. It's kind of incredible. Sorry, uh, four units. Four units. Right, right. But they held those back, but they sold all of the project very, very quickly. It's such a unique offering. Habitat on Broadway in Maine, he's involved in. 626 Alexander, The Oxley, all these smaller boutique but very, very cool, funky projects in East Van, and Ben Am's legs is right hand man. You know what makes
3: you sound 55 is when you throw a funky in there. <laughs> that, that really gives your age away. Well, they I'm, are, you
2: gotta admit, they're kind of
3: groovy. Yeah, they're <laughs> definitely groovy. Um, what we really gotta mention here before we get to this conversation with Jeremy and Ben is. Uh, there's a Jets game at 4:30 that you've basically designed your whole business around. <laughs> <laughs> you're pretty, you're pretty amped up. Uh, but Jets are now entering into the the, the, second the Winnipeg round. Jets. Yeah, we are. Uh, today is the first game, Jets Montreal. J- I think this
2: Toronto is a surprise is for everyone. Yeah, no one thought the Jets would be here. No one thought Montreal would be here. It's uh, almost nobody thought
3: that Toronto would
2: be out. No, I know, I know. But here's the thing. Picture this: It's Wednesday. Yes, it's almost pushing 30 above. Yes. Uh, Patios I don't, just I don't have any appointments this afternoon. And Restaurants the jets, just opened. Yeah, everything just opened up and the jets start at 4.30. So yeah, let's make this snappy. Well, Matt,
3: why don't we just quickly then touch on the stats before we get to this conversation. Let's talk
2: to the stats. They actually came out this morning. They're heading out to uh, folks on the live wire today, along with the sales ratios that breaks it down area by area. And uh, price band by uh, price and, band. And price band by price band. What I would say is basically uh, what we've been talking about for the last four to six weeks, I think is, is uh, borne out in the stats for me. There's basically only to highlight kind of the, the, the main narrative here that's occurring in kind of late spring 2021. One, there's a shift away from kind of the record-breaking pace that we were at. I feel like we've said on the podcast more than once, sprint to fast jog. So we're shifting away from that. There's a 13% decrease in sales From April 2021 to May. So we're slowing down. Okay. But May was still 27.7% above the 10 year sales average for May. So forget May 2020, because that was deep COVID. Uh, Not useful. Not super useful. Nothing was really going on. But we were still moving at a clip of 30% over the regular May sales volume since 2011. Which is to say it's still quite busy out there. Little spotty. We've talked about this before. Spotty yeah. for sure. And kind of week
3: over week, it's a little puzzling. It's a tough market to call. And a lot of people are saying it's like, you know, there's a, there's a narrative that's existing now where it's like the market has fallen off a cliff, which I disagree with. Because we, we sold a, a townhome last night in multiple offers, significantly over asking. I was in
2: two multiple offers yesterday. You were
3: in two multiple offers. On the buy op- side. Yeah, so there's, there's still a lot of like flurries of activity, but we've been using the language of spotty for a reason because it feels almost like if you take the exact same product and you launch it Two weeks apart, you could have a totally different result. That's exactly it. So
2: it's a little bit—it's week over week. Things are kind of changing, but not necessarily. Uh, it's
3: kind of up and down, up and down, right? It's like—it uh, almost not depends who the buyer is out there and how frustrated they are. Yeah, and, and how is, much they like the place, I and guess. how much they like the place, of course. And and this is this is really, I think, an interesting time because there's also two thoughts out there or two theories. One is that we're going to get busier as things open. And, and, the, and society opens up. The flip side of that argument is that people are going to stop focusing on real estate as extensively as they have been because they can start to socialize they can start to go to restaurants again they can maybe start to go to you know the social events that we've been missing and focus on their real life right which might take them out of the office in their their home looking at real estate yeah
2: you know what and again I feel like it's not much for predictions it's a very tough market consistently to predict but one thing I would say is it seems to me like the latter is happening at least in this first week of really nice weather
3: well we might have a Um, breath during during the summer, right?
2: I have a feeling with with potential travel, with heading to the beach. I think we're in for a slow summer, just by dint that no one wants to stare at a computer and look at listings.
3: Well, that's it. And uh, and we actually we were talking about this the other day. But we went last Saturday. I just got a uh, a cart to what would he call it? a not uh, a not a wagon a. Uh, yeah, a bike chariot. A, 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 it's yeah. Like baby a baby cart for the back of your bike. Exactly. Yeah, for the back of my bike. And we were all cycling. There was a couple people with us, and we were all kind of as you know, a couple families cycling yeah. down. I think it was actually
2: your family and my family.
3: Yeah. <laughs> That's the couple of families. <laughs> uh, couple of families cycling from I was like, whoa, Strath- who were you with? <laughs> yeah, you didn't know there was another family there. Uh <laughs> cycling from Strathcona to English Bay. It was like Carnival. It was like we're in Rio de Janeiro. It was like Woodstock. It was like standing room only from basically from Union Street on, well, more like Science World onward along the seawall. Standing room only, like hard to get a spot on the grass of the beach. And you know what? And the thing that struck me more than anything, there's
2: like a palpable sense of joy Right. Right? Like I feel like everyone was just so happy. It was like incredible. It yes. was incredible. And I think that's going to carry through the summer. And
3: you know, people are excited to go to open houses, but uh this people want to be social. We're social beings. Yeah. Before we cut Matt to the interview though, one last thing. We are sponsored by Oakland Realty. That's right, Oakland Realty. This is our brokerage, best brokerage in the city. If you are
2: a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, head over to Oakland.com slash join. Type in VRP 2020. That is Oakland.com slash join. Type in VRP2020, you'll talk to Michael Morgan and the gang, learn about a great culture, great resources, everything that is so good at Oakland, and you get a huge incentive for typing in VRP2020,
3: so do not forget. Yeah, absolutely, don't miss out on that. And then last but not least, the commercial real estate podcast just launched, uh, the Vancouver commercial real estate podcast with Corey Wright, of course, just launched episode four which uh, Down and dirty. That was a good dir- one. I the, was with Corey on that one. Yeah, the dirtiest job that's going to save you thousands. Go check out Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. But Matt, let's get to our conversation with Jeremy and Ben. This is an episode Blo- we cover everything.
2: I was going to say we go block by block through East Vancouver. So. And talk
3: about the whole development process, where to invest, what's going on in the city and the market. It's all super exciting And if you're stuff. keen on restaurants... <laughs> Stay tuned, Jeremy Waldman. Bit of a foodie, surprising. Bit of a foodie. Bit of a foodie, that's surprising. for sure. Yeah. All right, yeah. we'll enjoy you guys. All right, so we're here with Jeremy Waldman, Principal at Hudson Projects, and then Ben Amsleg, Principal at Framework Real Estate Group. How you guys doing? Great. Thanks awesome. for having us.
1: Very well. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much for coming down, guys. Uh, maybe we'll start with Jeremy. Can you tell our
1: listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, principal of Hudson Projects, local real estate development firm based in Vancouver. I guess I'm I'm a local guy. Uh, born at St. Paul's Hospital, grew up in Greater Vancouver. Educated at UBC for my undergraduate degree in uh, in business or commerce. Went away overseas to school on a couple of occasions, and I've uh, oh, always nice. come back to Vancouver. And um, have certainly led my professional life in Vancouver. And when it comes to real estate, it was pretty hard to leave. Every time I'd come back and look to go away again, the market was just taking another big jump, right. and so it kept me here. My career kept me here,
2: right? So yeah. And were you have you been in real estate since? kind of day dot after school?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I used to really enjoy being the youngest guy in the room and I no longer am. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in the real estate uh, industry for actually 20 years. Wow. Right now. Yeah. Right and you can't
3: see Jeremy, but he looks about 30 years old. So, so he started when he was tw- he started when he was 10.
1: <laughs> yeah. I remember the first couple projects that I did or worked on at a university. I was sitting in a room and Some of the older individuals in the room asked and looked at me and stopped the meeting and said, How old are you? (laughs) Right. I never wanted to say anything because I was, I was probably about half the age, if not, if not a third of the age of the average age in the room. Yeah. But those days are starting to be past me now.
3: You got to so. just grow a beard when yeah. you're a young looking guy. Just be the beard guy. What, uh, where were you traveling to mostly? Well, I, I did my undergraduate degree at
1: UBC. And part of that program I studied in Sydney, Australia. And then I went away to do my master's degree as well in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And, wow. and part of that was actually taught um, in Australia, obviously, and some exposure in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing and Singapore actually. So but after I graduated school, I was uh, quite fortunate to have job offers in several cities around the world and but I came back to Vancouver. It was real estate market was on fire and I was actually offered a great opportunity in Vancouver and I've stayed ever since. So
2: that's kind of a like in a Pacific Rim education. Very much was, was so. Was that by design or did you just kind of fall into exploring kind of various markets it seemed? Somewhat interconnected, I guess, with Vancouver.
1: Um, there was two reasons. One was moving overseas for the experience and and just having a blast, which it was, in all honesty, especially during the undergraduate degree. There wasn't a lot of uh education happening when I was <laughs> <Right>. overseas. <Throsposis. laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a good time. Um but I think as I got a little bit older and was really focusing on my career, when I went away to do my master's degree, um, I, you know, I looked at schools internationally and, and I remember I met with the head of the real estate department at UBC at the time, Sir Somerville, who you, you probably are familiar with. Been on the
3: show.
2: Been yeah. on the show. Was, yeah, I remember he was, he was uh, upset about not having donuts. <laughs> he did roast us about He roasted it, us. The no kid. donut. At that yeah. time we were in Mount Pleasant yeah. he
3: was wondering. And as you, you can know. see, we've brought donuts to every <laughs> podcast since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I want to just loop uh, Ben in here because we haven't uh, introduced you, but Ben, we've known you now for probably close to a decade, Matt and I, but can you tell our listeners
4: a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I think uh, we met when I was working for Century 21. That yes, was uh, yeah. That was 13 years ago when I got my real estate license. I... Um, was licensed with Century 21. And at that time when I got into real estate, I decided I want to put my realtor hat and do open houses. And that was the direction that I wanted to take. And then a good friend of mine at the time, who today is my business partner, his name is David, I was like, hey, how about you try project sales? And I was like, hmm, tell me a little bit more about project sales. And uh, he told me I liked it. I applied for a job with a company named Ani, which a lot of you guys are familiar with as a local developer. And since then, I've basically decided to put my realtor hat in the closet and really follow that pre-sale world. And 13 years later, this is this is really the direction that I decided to take in real estate to focus on pre-sale brand new projects. And that's really the foundation of what framework is, is really all that years of experience Framework is relatively new, it's a year and a half been incorporated, but the experience that both David and I have collectively is almost 25 years, and that's right. me running sales and David runs marketing and collaterally, we, we work with great developers like Jeremy. And this is our second project with Jeremy, and we'll talk a little bit more about the experience we had over the years. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was really Century 21, realtor, and then we're just like, nope, I think I want to do something completely different. So so just
2: Ben, thinking about that, um, real estate's a fairly competitive industry. I feel like project sales is hyper-competitive. What attracted you to the pre-sale market, like with Ani, and then branching out on your own and kind of-
4: It's a very good question. I like the storytelling aspect of it. When you think about buying a pre-sale home, you're basically in essence, legally, you're selling a disclosure statement. Right. Everything that you see in the sales center can be changed. The way their agreements are written, they can be changed. Always at the discretion of the developer. but in, And usually the developers will try and change it for the better. But in essence, you're painting a picture. And that picture is how your home will look in two, three years. It starts with how it will look. And then you're basically trying to place someone in a place that they're going to live for the next two, three, four years down the road. That's really what drew me. The challenges. To overcome, to be able to make the sale is really what I felt was the challenge that I needed at the time. And over the years, the market became more competitive and more offering came to the table. And the better you became at creating this offering and overcome objection is really what continue challenges me. Mm -hmm. And for me, if I'm not challenged, I'm not interested. If I don't wake up in the morning and look forward to something different I'm not interested. And when I did resell, 20, 30 deals a year. And I felt there was a pretty busy realtor would do 20, 30. Of course, there's sure. people that do hundreds and kudos for them. And pre-sale, you do 100, to sometimes 300 deals a year. So when you think about the amount of constantly being on and constantly overcoming objections, that's really what drove me. And I guess that constant... Challenge is really what drives me, and that was the line of work that I was uh, excited about. To be honest, yeah, just multiply everything by ten. I was like, "Cool, I'm <laughs> oh, in." <laughs> Sounds all right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, thinking Jeremy about. So, of course, we've had you on because we're we're really keen to talk about assembly. But more about Strathcona and and Vancouver and where you guys see opportunities and things like that. But it sounds to me like just thinking about your kind of story, Jeremy, as to how you got to where you are. You were talking to Sir Somerville at UBC. So that's real estate from there. You travel, you come back. Were you immediately drawn to the development world or were there other, did you wear other hats in this industry or were you immediately like, hey, I got goals in development, I want to build. And yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that kind of component of your career?
3: Yeah, I've um,
1: always been a very inquisitive person as a young age and always really interested in building things. I think like most boys, you know, you're, uh, you want to build things and, uh, and I'd spend hours and not to sound cheesy, but I, you know, I used to take things apart at the house, all the time, half of them would probably get put back together. The other half would be a, a hunk of garbage in the uh, in the corner, sort of thing. And uh, nice work, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some of them turned out, most didn't. Um, but I was always really fascinated with how things worked. I was always very entrepreneurial. I definitely have <laughs> never been an individual that could be told what to do. I always spoke my mind, and I always will, and um, always marched to the beat of my own drum. But I actually my path was always to uh, go to engineering at UBC and become a mechanical engineer. It was always my goal from a very young age, and I think it was probably about a week before I was about to apply to UBC to go get into engineering. And spoke to one of my cousins and um, on that side, you know, my father's side of the family, there's a lot of engineers and, and a lot of gone to UBC. And I spoke to him, and he said, you know, do you want to be behind a desk, kind of drawing up, learning how to use CAD and basically designing other people's designs for the next 10 years and really to cut your teeth because you're not going to be designing anything for the first number of years. You're going to be in the office behind a computer. And I said, that doesn't really sound very appealing. (laughs) You know, I wanted to be the individual leading the design and building things and owning my own company. And so I guess it was a week or two before I was about to apply to UBC and I stepped back and said, well, I don't think that's for me. My brother, who's uh, two years older than me, was doing the commerce program at UBC. And I said, Well, maybe I'll go into business. Maybe that's a a field that would be interested. And by default, I looked at the different options at UBC and there was, you know, marketing. Okay. That's somewhat interesting. You know, there's finance. Okay. That's somewhat interesting. There's accounting. God, no, you (laughs) You know, I I, don't know if that's any of the accountants. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm a numbers guy, but I, you know, I just didn't see myself doing that full time and sort of went through the gambit and, um, there's a program at the time called Urban Land Economics, which is now called Real Estate, I believe, at, at the Sodder School. And I said, well, by default, that sounds interesting. You know, I get the business side. Um, I get to be involved in building and development. I kind of just fell down that path, and it kind of went from there and did the four-year program. And yeah, that was that was sort of the initial path. And then when I graduated university... I actually became a designated commercial appraiser. And I was working with for a number of the the bigger developers and smaller in, in greater Vancouver, just appraising a lot of the commercial property and development sites. And so I was really exposed to that side of the business and really just it took off from there. And, and I really enjoyed it. And then I went away to school, came back, worked for a couple of developers, really cut my teeth with them, learned what to do, and and more importantly, learned what not to do with some of them Right, right. Um, and really decided what I – what I wanted as a company and as a brand and as a philosophy for my company and started the company about 10 years ago and haven't looked back since. Um, I'm the most unhireable development individual (laughs) in Vancouver, you know, and (laughs) and I definitely learned that I wasn't cut out to work for somebody else. And that's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I just, I realized that. Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. Well,
3: but so how do you, how do you make the transition from, Working for other developers to to becoming a developer on your own. I mean, obviously, there's that's a, a really tough transition. I would imagine tough transition and a tough
2: leap, right? I feel like right. if you change careers or do something, you know, go into real estate, it's like that's a big leap. You know, you have to believe in yourself. But to go out in the world of development, which I feel like is probably the most competitive industry in Vancouver, right. like that's a that seems like a tough move.
1: It is as an isn't, you know, I, I guess a step back, I, a catalyst for me in my career was actually, I bought my first condo when I was 21 in Kitsilano on West 3rd, I always remember. And I ended up renovating it myself flipping it about a year later. And I used that profit to actually go do my master's degree, still have some money to travel and enjoy the world, and still have enough money to put a down payment on my first, my second condo when I came back to Vancouver. And I had even enough money left over to actually invest in my first uh, commercial project. It wasn't a lot of money. It was all the money that I had. And I was good at finding, and I still am good at finding good opportunities and sort of thinking outside the box on deals and acquisitions. And basically I put my first site under contract in Railtown, brought in a partner and some investors. I put a very little bit of skin in the game, but it was all that I had. And, you know, I I actually owe a lot to, um, you know, sort of a a long-term family friend that um, basically said to me before I went on my own, they said, you know, why are you working for other people? Like, you know, this business, well, go find a project and we'll invest in you. And several years later, when I put my first site under contract in Railtown. I knocked on their door and said, guess what? Would you be interested in investing? And they did. And they've invested in almost every deal we've done since. They've done very well. We've done very well together. But I remember they said to me, they said, you know, we're putting in a lot more equity than you are in this deal. And I said, yeah, but you know what? I'm putting up my covenant. It might not be worth much right now, but if things don't go well, they're coming after me in my house. Right. And I said, more importantly, I want to make sure that my first project and everyone after that is a success. And that is worth more than the equity, the limited amount of equity I have in. It. And they looked at me and said, Great, we're in. Let's do the deal. And yeah, so we put together um, the investors and, and that investor and, and brought in a partner on it. And it was a big success.
2: So the projects that you've done over the last 10 years, I guess starting in Railtown, because a lot of people listening will, will know the names.
1: Yeah. Um so we've we've done a lot of joint venture deals and partnerships. And I've always flown under the radar until very recently. You right. know, I like when the projects speak for themselves and so the first project was actually 626 alexander that i did on my own and now if i had built quite a few projects before that of course and gone through the process so it wasn't like it was my first project i didn't know what we were doing probably quite the opposite we didn't know everything but you know we had a good handle and, and it ended up being a, a great project but i brought on um, a partner to that project and it kind of flew under a different banner hudson's always been in the background yeah. sort of as partners as kind of silent partners but still running the projects mm-hmm. But up until recently, we really haven't put our name on many on many projects. And that's that's changing. It's just grown to be too big that we need to brand the company and get out there. And it's been really a pleasure to see buyers kind of follow us. Although we don't have a social media presence, we do have a website, but it's quite limited. And it's really um, been quite a pleasure to see buyers follow us and their friends buying our projects just because they know the projects that we've completed. So it's it's a very different approach to most other development companies mm-hmm. in Vancouver.
3: Absolutely. Well, Ben, maybe in thinking about when, at what point developers bring you in as the marketing team. So typically when are your services engaged?
4: It ranges. It depends on the developer. Ideally, as a marketing company, you want to come in as soon as they purchase the land. Because during that process, you can have some kind of feedback on the unit mix, what's going to be built there, their sizes, and really the general offering. That being said, it's not always the case. Sometimes a developer will reach out to you when unit is already determined, the sizes are already determined, and then you need to work within that box and really try and move interior walls to try and make the offering as appealing as possible. Usually, the earlier, the better, right? As soon as they lock down the land. In reality, a lot of times it does not happen like that. <laughs> they work with the architect and come up with a building that they truly believe is sellable and that's when they engage the marketing company and boys and girls, if that's what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you should be engaging the marketing company way in advance because a lot of times the architect will design an amazing building, but unfortunately it's not very sellable. Right. And we also acknowledge it's not just about the sellability of the building, but both the architect, the developer and us want to have a building that will eventually sell, do well, do well, And as Jeremy mentioned, ideally, those people will do well financially, their friends will hear about it, they will hear about it, and they'll continue following you. So it all comes from very well-designed buildings as early as possible into the process. Right, right.
2: Just thinking about, you know, the stories created, it strikes me that a lot of what you're doing, Ben, and where you've kind of built your brand out is East Vancouver What do you guys like about East Vancouver or maybe put another way, and this is not to say you can talk about other areas, what areas are you most excited about in Metro Vancouver? Mm -hmm. I might have led with the the answer there.
1: So East Vancouver is our backyard. We know the neighborhoods. we know that Vancouver is a very small city. We think we're an international city. We are a tiny international city you know and you guys know this it, you're one block over and all of a sudden you're no longer in the right neighborhood or the right side of the street. and we know that. you know I, I would say we we probably know East Vancouver better than the majority of developers in Vancouver, not all but the majority and we literally live and breathe Vancouver in the different neighborhoods. so we know the risks associated with it. we know where there's value. Um, We know how to push value, but in terms of what neighborhoods are exciting, you know, invest and build in neighborhoods that are walkable, that are unique, that are hopefully close to transit. And a lot of those are, are things that other developers look at as well. But, you know, neighborhoods that other developers shy away from, we embrace and we look at the opportunity and we really dig into who the buyer demographic is and we try to cater towards that buyer. And so, some of the neighborhoods that we build in are excited about are Commercial Drive, Cedar Cottage, Mount Pleasant, of course, Fraser, and Strathcona. And those are neighborhoods that we can really associate with, derive value with. And quite frankly, when we get up in the morning, if we're excited about a project, we'll do the project. You know, ask us or bring us a site out in Langley. No offense to Langley, but building row homes, not for us, doesn't get us excited not something we're interested in. We are predominantly urban developers of multifamily and mixed use in those types of neighborhoods that we explain. But, mm-hmm.
4: uh, yeah. I have to agree. I find East Vancouver, I live in East Vancouver, off commercial drive. Initially, when I moved to Vancouver, it was downtown, lived in downtown for the longest time. And as the family grew, downtown was not suitable anymore. And the next opportunity was either Main Street or commercial drive and for me the reason why commercial drive was the most appealing area is really the walkability where i found main street was kind of sectioned off and like there's some dead areas in between where commercial drive all the way from venables up to broadway i felt was continuously walkable with restaurants groceries coffee shops um and the people that lived there They're real. I found that and I really enjoyed it. If it's going to the park and conversing with the parents or sitting on a patio, I really like that vibe and then throw some Italian and Portuguese in the mix (laughs) and you get a really fun, eclectic group of people. So for me, it will be East Vancouver Commercial Drive in particular, just because of really the vibe of that community. Real people live there and uh, you can start seeing it. Like uh, The art community is also a big thing for us, colorful and fun. And uh, we embraced that in Strathcona, I think, um, really well.
2: You know, before we get to Strathcona, because it's the story of Strathcona, and Adam, of course, lives in Strathcona, and the last couple of years have been interesting. And, you know, you guys have recently launched the project. But just thinking about kind of the East-West divide in Vancouver, we used to kind of talk about the gap between the communities, and there's still, in terms of price point, and there's still that gap that exists. But one thing that we've kind of been talking about over and over again And with other people in the office here is, you know, Adam lives in East Van. I live in East Van. You think about, okay, could you move to the west side or west Vancouver or even north van for that matter? One of the things that keeps kind of pumped the brakes is you got to get in your car in a lot of those areas. You know, it's not as walkable as East Van. Do you think that kind of push towards more urbanism or that kind of environment that people are craving now, is that kind of transforming the city? in a kind of fundamental way where it's not like the West side prices are here and East Van gets too close and then it snaps back. Are we kind of transforming the city in a lot of ways now? Do you see
1: it that way or? You know, what's really starting to transform the city is, is um, what's happened with patio permits over the last couple of months. Interesting. Yeah. And it, it doesn't take an economist or a, um, or a planner to go sit on a patio and have a couple of pints and realize what's happening in Vancouver. And I hope it stays because what you're seeing is the fast tracking of patio permits and basically neighborhoods taking back the streets, which is really interesting. Right. So instead of being car focused and parking on the street, people are walking to their local pub, to their local restaurant, to their local coffee shop and sitting outside, especially with the weather getting better. And I can't tell you, I mean, out of necessity over the last couple of months and um, – We've had a dine outside and it's been such a pleasure to be sitting on a patio that was kind of a pop-up and hopefully it becomes permanent right. on the street. And there's this liveliness to Vancouver that's happening now that I hope stays. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a great thing that's starting to change. But you know, in terms of parking, you know, this is a whole other conversation, but the fact that the city of Vancouver has a minimum parking count is archaic. We've got to change to a maximum parking count or let the developer decide how much parking is required on a site. We're definitely seeing a push for more electrical electric. Vehicle parking on site. That's that's probably a given. I think there's a notion that buyers want less parking. Some do. A lot of buyers still want their parking stall, and often it's to preserve their investment.
2: I feel like it's a security blanket for a lot of people, even if you don't have a car, right? It's like,
1: absolutely.
2: Yeah, we need the parking.
1: Yeah, I mean, we. Not to have a shameless plug, but our our project in Mount Pleasant Habitat, we originally had quite a substantial parking relaxation on site. And because of the city policy, we actually had to provide a whole other level of underground parking for bike parking, which is a good thing. But we looked at it and said, well, we can't really monetize bike parking, but we can monetize vehicle parking. So let's step back, forget the city's new policy to reduce vehicle parking. Let's actually build more vehicle parking and less bike parking. We still have a lot of bike parking, and we were able to monetize that. The buyers still wanted parking more than we originally thought. So it's interesting. There's a shift in some projects, but not as much as we think. Hmm. So, And you're right. It's a security blanket. I think a lot of buyers, and Ben might be able to talk more because he's he's a little bit more in touch with the buyers on a day-to-day basis. But it doesn't seem like it's shifting as much as people think.
4: Right. I'll tell you a little bit about parking. (laughs) (laughs) So over the years, I worked on some projects which had more parkings than homes. And in most recent history, less parking, more homes. And what that did, which is really interesting, is it kind of basic supply and demand. And what we've seen on the buildings that have less parking than the number of homes, all of a sudden the value of parking goes up. Just a very, very simple supply and demand. And basically, what it tells me as someone is looking from the sidelines is that there is still in 2021, there's a market for parking stalls. As much as we'd like to take more transit, which we are, ride more bikes, which we do, people still own cars. The city wants less cars, which makes complete sense. And I think as you're what's becoming more evident in the downtown core, For example, there was a building that I sold, 200 of these one bedrooms did not have parking stalls allocated to them. There were only 50 parking stalls. And interestingly enough, there were not hundreds of people that wanted parking with those one bedrooms. So if you're in downtown and you're building a tower and you have a lot of small one bedrooms, then that's fine not to sell a parking stall. But as you start getting outside of the city core, people use their cars. Car to go is no longer there. So you only have one player, Evo, I believe, for car sharing. And in 2021, people still want to have their car. So Mm -hmm. I think um, parking is still something that developers can monetize on it. We've seen it at Habitat, even though we're literally 300 meters from a future SkyTrain station by the time the building will complete. But definitely cars are still there. Uh, Walkability is something that we're seeing as a very high demand. When we start painting that picture that we're talking about at the beginning of the show, really buyers want to know, can I walk to my grocery store? Which coffee shop do you like going to? Which restaurants do you like going to? How far are they from my place? And they don't want to drive there. Ideally, they like to walk there. And as we start the marketing campaign, we start really emphasizing on those amazing amenities that are coffee, restaurants, parks, that you can walk there. Where in the past, you would be like, five-minute drive, 10-minute drive. Now, if you can capitalize on a five-minute walk, it has more value for those buyers. And, um... Jeremy and Jordan as well, their focus is really walkability. They built where you can walk places. And one of the many reasons I think they have a lot of success is because that's what buyers are looking for now. They want to get out and walk rather than drive. Yeah.
3: I think it's it's interesting because we talk about walkability on this show. We also talk about the areas that we often hear people talk about community. And I feel like walkability just organically creates community, right? Because people are out and they're engaging. I find in my area, when I walk around, this is maybe a transition into talking about Strathcona, but in my area, we have like bodega-type small storefronts where you go and you can get a coffee, and I see my neighbours and I engage my neighbours on a different level than if I got in my car and went through the Starbucks drive-through, right? So I think what, in thinking about that, kind of the, the moving towards a walkable area, it breeds community, and some of the critiques of some of the areas in Greater Vancouver, the Lower Mainland, is that there's no longer that sense of community? Is that a fair assessment when you look at East Vancouver? 100%, 100%. Yeah 100.
1: but I also think it comes down to part of it is design and a building for design and a project and creating community within a project which we try to do. Great community that walk to coffee shop like you mentioned, but you also create building by doing relatively simple design moves like an open court scheme where everyone has their own front door. you can't help but get to know your neighbor. Right, um, that's not for everyone. For most people that I think are buying it or living, seeing that in our projects, a real demand for that type
3: of connected social projects. We try to promote private roof decks and design those into our projects. A
1: big amenity for residents, but we purposely keep the planters and low so that you have to get to know your neighbor. You can put up privacy screens and kind of stylize your roof deck as you right.
4: That's
3: funny. When I think of your buildings, Jeremy, I think you're like the king of the rooftop deck. <laughs> that's like that's like every Haven't building. You seen his license plate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> got your new tagline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but honestly, though, like everything, almost a lot of your buildings, and and I mean, with the exception of maybe some of the multi, larger multi-family buildings, but a lot of the townhome developments you've done, they all have these huge rooftop decks. Which to me, it seems like. Such a smart way to design a building because I mean, and maybe we talk about assembly first of all. Because Matt and I have joked on the show, it's like thousand square feet of rooftop. It's- I feel like when you go and look at the rooftop
2: deck in <laughs> the display center, you're like, this isn't the real size of the
3: rooftop deck. And They've and somehow made and it. Ben's seven like, times. actually, no, that's yeah. a, that's no, a, I need to re- get cool. my measuring tape. And- <laughs> <laughs> Very smart design. So, what do you guys like about Strathcona? And maybe talk a little and, bit about. And and even just thinking back to you know, you did
2: mention that you're good at spotting opportunities, acquisitions. Yeah, maybe can you need to take us back to what you liked about Strathcona, whenever that was, four years ago, or whenever you guys picked up that property.
1: Yeah. So that's um, you know, Assembly is a partnership between Fabric and Hudson. And we're certainly like-minded developers, which is why we partner to do the work on the project together. Well, coming back to walkability, you know, when we went through the marketing process, which was all done via Zoom during COVID, which is an interesting experience. We have a meeting at the end of this week in person you know, six feet apart with the marketing team just to sort of go through that project and see what worked and what didn't. Mostly it it worked, but we did that whole project and branding and envisioning over Zoom. When we started dialing in or diving into the project, it was walkable, but it's unlike sort of Mount Pleasant where, you know, 10 minutes walking down Main Street and you you get the community and you've already pinpointed three or four coffee shops, your little, you know, Thai restaurant, your bar, your retail shops. Strathcona is a little different. There are some amazing gems in Strathcona, That are walkable, but you really kind of got to roll up your sleeves. And we also found that the majority of buyers that end up buying in Strathcona, and you guys probably know this, don't actually currently live in Strathcona. They're coming from other neighborhoods. You know, it's that young couple having their first child that lives in Yellowtown, lives in Mount Pleasant, lives in the Olympic Village. They want a bit more space and they move into Strathcona. And so we really spent time sort of educating ourselves but also educating the buyers on what those gems are in terms of uh, retail, restaurants, coffee shops, community centers, parks. And I think that's translated really well. But what we liked about the project was that it was unique. And it wasn't a set of problems. It was an opportunity we looked at and got excited about. And I think it was an opportunity to really placemake in Strathcona on something that was unique. I mean, it's modest in scale. It's five stories, assembly. But I think it was an opportunity to really place make something that was unique and create something that was unique that's going to be there for 100 plus years, which is uh, pretty exciting to be a part of.
2: Yeah, well, and and not to mention, there's not a lot of new construction going on in Strathcona, right? I feel like there's a couple things. Like one, you talk about knowing East Van, Strathcona, similar to Chinatown. I feel like block by block, there's very different feels, right? right. And Adam can speak to that. I think more than than I can, but, but just won't. <laughs> But I mean, it's knowing the neighborhood for one, but then the ability to actually build something in Strathcona, it's like, when's, I'm trying to think of something else recently. I think that's partly why. There is none. Yeah. There what, there where are the none. success, apart from I everything can, you guys did, it's like, wow. That's not along
3: the Main Street corridor, at least, right? Like more like, you know, you think about, what is it? B6A. Yeah. Like the Chinatown um, kind you know, of stuff. More Chinatown stuff. But there's really no new buildings in, like, I can't think of anything in Strathcona, outside of Strathcona Village. But. Arguably not really in <laughs> No. So
4: interestingly enough, Jeremy came up with this opportunity and we started digging about like, hey, let's price these homes. And then you start looking <laughs> at comparables and you're like, OK, so let's go into Strathcona and see if we can find a multifamily offering. And there is none. The story with Stratkona, just a little bit of background, one of the things that we've done, which was really eye-opening for me, because I honestly, I knew Stratkona, but not as as much, um, is we went through a, a tour with a historian that lives in Stratkona and really got into the History of Stratcona, which I personally did not know that well. And it is the oldest community in Vancouver. If some would have known what happened, is the piers off Gastown, and then the folks would live in Stratcona and they would just walk to work. And that was before Stratcona had that name, which used to be called the East End. And shortly after, the West End, which is now the West End of Vancouver. And through the years, the city has decided to really focus and not lose the character of the neighborhood, which means in a redevelopment value, you cannot buy three homes and just basically knock them down and create townhomes, which is a very common redevelopment process in Vancouver in some areas. So there is no multifamily offering in Stratcona, and I mean in the heart of Stratcona if it's Venables to uh, Hastings. The most recent multifamily was the one that she just mentioned on East Hastings by the wall center, the container looking building, which everyone mm-hmm. has recognized it orange, but there's nothing in the heart of Stratcona. Mm-hmm. So when we started thinking about values, we had to get outside of Stratcona. We had to look at really projects that are similar, but not in that community. Because in Strat-Kona, it's there's really no condos for sale in the heart of Strathcona. It's in either townhome, duplex, or single family home. And what we found is that there's uh, nothing in between. So then we started, what we were doing is we were basically establishing a new value in the community for a product that did not exist. And from there, we were like, okay, well, what will the market pay for that product, which we know, for that offering? And it was a lot of exercise of like, do you think people will buy it for this? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> do you think they'll buy it for this? I don't know, maybe. And there was a lot of... W- okay, so if they're not going to buy this, how much would they'll pay over there? And it was really interesting. That was an open discussion that Jeremy, I, my partner David, and Jordan have had for almost since November, really. And what's interesting is that we've noticed, the same with our market values, is that people would have paid more than we initially thought. Right. And we're seeing it today as well. And we've seen it with a success that we've had, which we'll talk later on, but- In essence, what Jeremy and Jordan have created is a product that never existed in a community that never had it before. And that, I think, in part has to do with the success of what Assembly was. And of course, the quality, which we'll talk about later on, and the small details that went into the project to make it so unique and so different. And buyers these days are looking for that uniqueness. They're looking for the quality. They're looking for that lifestyle. And uh, we're able to offer it in a community where it was never offered. Mm-hmm. And that goes back into his, into Jeremy's mantra of finding opportunities and uncovering them. Because Jeremy, if I'm not wrong, this was not a residential offering at the beginning.
1: The existing zoning is um, industrial office. Funny enough, we uh, maybe not so funny uh, going through the rezoning process these days. That's probably another conversation. But we worked very closely with um, the downtown east planning team on the project, which were very supportive of the project and the relatively new community plan at the time, which we really delivered to a T to what the community plan wanted, which was creative industrial production slash retail space on the ground floor and predominantly family housing above. And we took a little bit of a leap of faith. And instead of taking the sort of tried and tested approach of small efficient compact studio ones twos oh do we have to do any three bedrooms and the city's saying you need to do some three bedrooms okay we'll do some three bedrooms we took a different approach we had predominantly two and three bedroom homes so really livable homes and we saw an opportunity there and thought that if we designed the product right that the demand would be there for the larger homes and they were
2: mm-hmm. It strikes me as the whole thing, the unique factor of Strathcona is such a unique community, but then having this product, which is so unique. Can we talk a little bit about how you analyze a deal? Because, you know, you find this property that's not even zoned for residential, as I understand it, right, at the start. And then going through kind of establishing who are these homes for, what does that look like, what are they going to want in an offering, like that process. And I guess this goes... To either of you, but yeah, can we talk a little bit more about how you kind of, because it's basically, you're looking at a, a blank canvas and trying to imagine,
3: you know, pencil out the future, right? And, and was the play always residential or was there a commercial component at one point?
1: Oh, we questioned it. For three and a half years, <laughs> was this is this the right move? You know, the gray hair was starting to come in, and uh, my partner on the project. I don't think there's much gray hair to come back. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that
3: but I so much hair up. Shout up out there. to Jordan McDonald. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but mine's certainly coming in gray. Um, yeah, I, it was. Yeah, it was residential. You know, when Jordan and I sat down and looked at the site, he says, you know, I'm looking at the site and it's a an East van. And I said, whereabouts is it roughly? He said, Strathcona. I said, yeah, I'm looking at it as well. And I said, well, how are you looking at it? And he said, how are you looking at it? And I said, I, I think you're looking at it wrong. I said, I, I think it's an open courtyard scheme. I think we want to go through the the headache and the challenges of full rezoning and public consultation in the downtown east side, um, which I probably don't need to get into the challenges of that in itself. We've gone through it before, always successfully. So we kind of knew how to navigate that process. Right. We certainly looked at it as a, under the existing zoning and said, you know what, there's better return here financially, but was it the right thing for the community in the site? And so we decided that going through that rezoning process was the right thing for the community as a mixed use commercial residential project and that's why we decided to go down that process but how do we analyze a site i mean we go through the same process as other developers you know we run the same pro forma very similar costs and revenue but we also spend a lot of time in a community when we buy a site and when i mean that is we truly do live and breathe you know, I'll spend a couple of weeks hanging out in that community, going for dinner, going for lunch, going for coffee, going Seeing for gelato. G- going for gelato. <laughs> yeah, definitely going for gelato. Still and-
4: going for gelato.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? We like to see who the demographic is. You know, the young mothers that are, you know, pushing that fancy baby buggy is a good sign that they hopefully are able to afford to buy your home and yeah we spend a lot of time in that neighborhood and delve into who the demographic is and we we determine whether it's a project financially that makes sense how do we push values and returns and um if it's exciting mm-hmm. and this project checked off every box mm-hmm. for us
2: yeah it does strike me just as an aside we back in 2016 or 2017 we talked a lot on the program about that the parking lot in Chinatown that the development site that kind of died a slow and painful death there presumably yeah, downtown east side going through that rezoning process is not for the faint of heart. I don't know if Railtown would kind of
3: have history in, in, in and, and around areas there. are As politically charged, right? I mean, that's always a big thing. There's got to be a lot of resistance that you, that you wouldn't encounter in a lot of areas.
1: Sometimes it's luck of the draw without knowing all the nuances of the the project in Chinatown that you're speaking of, I think part of that was, was luck of the draw. And that's a whole other two hour segment that we could probably talk about. And I'm sure the developer behind episode, that. Could, yeah. 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 Next week's <laughs> episode. But we spent a lot of time and we did on assembly on the upfront public consultation and that goes a long way. And then we tailored the design to what we feel would fit within the community. And I think most of the opposition, when they see the design, the team behind it, and there's a face to the team at the open houses, right. at the public consultation, goes a long way.
2: And like, can we just talk about the commercial space? Because that was one of the thing that like, it seems like such a smart design feature of this project, but can you just kind of, I don't know, Ben or or Jeremy, whoever wants to speak to it, just talk about, so the residential, I think we got, but the, the commercial space?
1: Yeah, we've... Um... We've really tried to open up the ground floor of the site, so almost the entire ground floor is commercial space, but it's also a semi-public, private space during the day, during business hours, where we've got a common muse that actually bisects the entire site through the middle, east to west, and then partly north to south. And we took cues from some of the activated laneways from cities outside of Vancouver, London, Melbourne, to name a couple. And we actually did study some of the laneways there and how active they are. And if you've ever been to those cities, it's it's such a fantastic experience because it's not your traditional street-fronting deep retail space. You really have to kind of seek that space out and find it. And some of the best restaurants, cafes, and retailers are on those laneways. So we've opened up the ground floor of the space with this public muse that goes through it. And what it's allowed us to do is create – Extensive glazing around the sort of merchant, retail, creative production, and office space on the ground floor, where you don't have these deep bays, it actually shallows up the bay of the commercial units, and also evokes a bit of an interest because you've got the public that can actually walk through the site during the day. And so we've got nine sort of creative merchant spaces on the ground floor that are strata space, so they are for sale. We're coming to the market in the next next week week to two weeks. Uh, that's my shameless plug there, but. Um, But it creates a smaller sort of affordable commercial space on the ground floor. And some of the early sort of interest we've had without even going out to the market is from local creative design firms. You know, we've got a coffee roaster that's interested in purchasing space and opening up there. Um, Without naming names, we've got a restaurant that's looking to open up space. We have an architectural firm, another design firm. And those are some of the sort of uses that are coming out of the work that would like to purchase their first space. They are all happen to be East Vancouver established businesses that want to buy their own first piece of real right. estate and um those are the sort of buyers that are looking to to come into and activate that ground floor which is which is pretty cool pretty exciting
2: and it's going to be like i'm just thinking of that area because you're east of the tracks i guess there's the the storefronts along hastings of course there's Lupolo and the gelato along prior yeah but really it's going to be like a centerpiece of that of the community of the East Strathcona, I don't know if that's actually what it's called, but East of the Track Strathcona, right? I mean, this assembly is going to be the centerpiece of the community. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, that's what we've worked really hard to have created and to create. Yeah. I think it will be. Yeah. I think it'll be a catalyst for that, that immediate neighborhood, which Strathcona hasn't seen before.
4: Can we talk about, so how many homes were offered for sale? We released 36 homes. In essence, there's 40 homes in the development that are up for sale. And Jeremy and Jordan have a a little bit of a different approach on releasing a building, which I think is a great approach, actually. They pick around 10% of the project and they don't sell it. The reason for that, and it just makes sense, the stuff that they build, they feel so strong about that it it can sell for more money when it completes. A lot of times when you sell a pre-sell, again, you paint a picture, but it's not the real thing. You can't really walk through your home. You can't really feel the space is as good of a job as we can do. it It's never like the real thing. And Jeremy would always at the beginning of the meeting will be like, listen, guys, these homes are going to be so amazing. You'll see when it's done. And you hear about it a lot. And some developers say the truth and some fidget, which it is what it is. <laughs> So they held back 10% of the project and basically said, hey, you guys, Framework, go ahead and sell those 36 homes. And we sold them. <laughs> we sold them on uh, on our grand opening, which was amazing. Um, that consists of 90% of our homes, which sold, which is absolutely amazing. And unfortunately, we had over 5,000 people interested in these homes. So we only had 36 homes to sell and uh, went back to Jordan in Germany He said, guys, we've sold the 36 homes, can you build 36 homes more? (laughs) They couldn't. Uh, But they said, okay, I can give you the next best thing. And then they decided to actually release those four homes that they were intending on selling on completion. So the big story is that we just had a meeting the other day and they gave us the green light. And uh, this coming weekend, we will actually have four more homes to sell, which is exciting for us. The final four. The final four. The other 36 are done they paid their deposits. They are excited to move into their home in the next two years. But we have four more homes, which we can sell now rather than in two years. And um, I'm excited. We have a lot of people that are excited about these four homes, and we're excited to release them. And I'm happy that Jeremy let us sell them now rather than in two years. But we're happy. We're happy that we get to sell four more. So thank you, Jeremy. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So, so just
2: thinking about, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the success of the project about, I think why it's been successful and the early days, you know, I think, and I'm trying to remember when the, the public consultation was maybe, was that 2019 or 2018? I'm trying to think it was a while
3: back. It was a while back. It was was a a
2: distant memory. Okay. So, so in, in any event, this is, this project has been a long time coming. Right, you're a ways into the process when COVID hits. I'd be curious just to hear, apart from the challenges with Zoom and everything else, to actually get the project up and running. It was pretty shaky days there early in in there, especially when you're you know this deep into a project. And then you know, depending on who you talk to, and there's been challenges in Strathcona and other areas during COVID that weren't there before. I'm just wondering how you navigated that. Uh, you know, did you sleep well every night? You know, more more of those questions.
1: Surprisingly, I sleep very well every night. <laughs> Almost always, despite some of the stresses of the business. Right. Um, you know, we launched two projects during COVID. We were, I think, the first project to launch in East Vancouver towards the beginning of when COVID was happening. In that all was... of Vancouver. Is it all of Vancouver?
4: In all of Vancouver. Yeah. That was uh, October.
1: And that was Habitat.
4: That was Habitat. In Mount Pleasant. Right, right on uh, Broadway, right?
1: Right on Broadway, I yeah. think
2: everybody will know driving down Broadway. It's hard to miss.
1: Yeah, yeah. It did have the big H on site, which has come down now because we're well under construction. Um, obviously, we're under construction, so sales went very well. We saw pent-up demand. And although the city may not be growing uh, during COVID as much as it was previously, um, you know uh, – Know, families or, or couples are still having children. There's still downsizers. There's still people moving. There's still demand for housing across the spectrum: ones, twos, threes, single-family, townhomes. There's still demand. And at the beginning of COVID, as you guys know, there wasn't a lot of transactions happening. Sales mm-hmm. counts were down, but people were still moving and looking for housing. And, and as you know, a lot of people were at home and had a lot more time to look to look at housing. So we saw the registrant database actually uh, be very active. And so we launched uh, Habitat beginning. Uh, we had signage up, we had a lot of registrants and, and we saw demand there and took a little bit of a leap of faith and launched a project and did very well. Hit our pre-sales very quickly, which was a framework. framework are doing the sales on that and did a fantastic job. Were there some questioning on, whether, on what was happening in the world? Absolutely. But we just, you know, our projects are five to six years each, typically. You know, if we lost sleep at every blip, every peak or valley in the market, you know, we wouldn't sleep. These projects are long-term. And so we see continued demand in Vancouver for good quality, well-designed, well-built projects, which these are. And we saw demand for habitat and uh, we saw that demand for assembly as well.
4: Yeah, I think that one of the big things that we really identified while working on habitat is that demand for outdoor space that is larger than your average 30 square feet balcony and through that process what we're also able to do is quantify that demand and and translate it into dollars and what i mean by that is if you look at a unit that's 555 square feet and you'll price it let's say for 100,000 and then you'll look at the same unit one floor above with a 100 square feet patio so two times larger of a patio and you see that you can sell it for 130,000 all of a sudden you like mr developer that patio costs an extra 30,000 And while doing that, we're able to really zone in how much we can sell those large outdoor spaces for and then revert back to Jeremy. We're like, Jeremy, this is how much it will cost for you and this is how much we can sell it for. And I think that collaboration, um, knowing that there is demand for outdoor space, transition into assembly. Take in mind that assembly was always designed with outdoor spaces right off the bat, but we knew how much demand there is for those spaces. And when assembly came to the market, that was again one of the reasons why we created that presentation gallery with beautiful outdoor space, um, is to showcase that outdoor space, knowing how big of a selling feature that is. And it it was great. Like it was the, the results speak for themselves. People want more outdoor space. They don't want a thirty square feet patio. Yeah,
1: that presentation center took on a life of its own. That's for sure. Yes. And it was five thousand square feet for forty homes, and uh, which <laughs> some would say is overkill. But uh, we had the space there. We wanted something unique. We've got a beautiful street across from Admiral Seymour Elementary School. It's. Uh, we said let's let's bring buyers to the site. Mm-hmm. Let's bring them in. Let's create a bit of a unique experience in, in a uh, industrial warehouse and take a traditional. Presentation center and a and a fully furnished unit and just pull it apart, in its own sections, including the the private roof deck and fully furnished. There was a lot of work that went into that, but I think the buyers really, um, really responded well to that experience and, and the quality of product that, and the design that we were delivering. So
4: yeah, we quickly realized so when we were selling through COVID or proving through COVID, we created this online online calendar platform that basically gives you thirty minutes to tour the sell center, and then respectfully. The next group will come. And we quickly realized that 30 minutes is nowhere close to being <laughs> out. I think people. I got kicked out of there. <laughs> just, Matt was so stuck at the craft beer portion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a beautiful space. Um, I would, I want to say one of the most unique spaces I've had the opportunity to sell out of. So thank you for
3: creating this. I would base. agree. I would agree. Jeremy, I, I'm just thinking about you and how you sleep at night so well with all this going on. And and probably there's this. It sounds like there's this bedrock confidence uh, about the real estate market in Vancouver. Perhaps that just allows you to know that the direction that you're going is going to end up in a positive positive light. Can you talk about like the market right now? Obviously, the pre-sale market has done incredibly well in the in recent months. Everyone kind of talks about the resale market in the media, but thinking about pre-construction right now, are you guys surprised at how strong the pre-construction market is? Maybe I'll direct that question to both of you.
4: So the pre-sale market is in Vancouver in the last few years has been predominantly driven by investors. If you're a developer and you're building a tower without investor support, you're most likely not going to be able to get your pre-sale requirements, which in most buildings is around 65% of the homes sold. You have a tower, you have around 200 to 300 units. That's a lot of homes to sell to be supported by investors. The stuff that Jeremy builds uh, at this point of his career is aimed mainly towards end users. Yes, there are some investors, as any real estate offering, and you cannot tell someone if you're investing not to buy. But the stuff that he, uh, the real estate that he designs, along with Jordan, is aimed mainly towards end users. And currently, and I think we're going to continue seeing this trend, people are more keen on spending more money on their living arrangement, especially during covid and they're willing to spend more money for well-built homes that are very well-designed. And the attention to detail that Jeremy brings into his design, I want to say, is one of the highest I've worked with in the past. And I've worked with quite a few developers in the city. I think in the grand scheme where Jeremy is going for the type of product that he's designing is built and building, there's always going to be a market for. Um, we just saw it through a global pandemic. He built two buildings that sold almost instantly, which tells you that if you can do well in a market that is so uncertain, imagine how we can perform on markets that are pretty active. Now, talking about pre-sale, and generally what happens is you see a lot of mar- a lot of pressure on the resale market, which what it does is it leaves a lot of buyers frustrated on the sidelines not able to buy. And what that does is it brings those buyers to look at other opportunities, So the first thing they do is they look outside of Vancouver. Everyone wants to live in Vancouver, but again, affordability is an issue and access to product is also an issue. That's where pre-sale comes in. And when you have a developer that builds homes that are actually intended to be moved into, that resale buyer is all of a sudden considering pre-sale. And what it does is it says, hey, I know I wanted to move within the next 60 to 90 days. Right now, the the resale market is crazy. and We've seen it with data, multiple offers. We're seeing it as we speak. How about I'll put my down payment, I'll wait for two years, but at least I'm going to get a home that's brand new and it has all the features that I have. And that's where Jeremy comes in with his product, which is end user product, which these buyers are willing to take that two more years of renting, knowing they're going to get the perfect home. They don't need to go into multiple offers. They walk into the sales center, put the deposit, and they can sleep well at night in the next two years. So that's kind of what we're seeing in our side of the market. That's what I've seen, actually.
3: Sounds like everybody's sleeping well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Four hours a night. (laughs) Uh,
2: Maybe as a final question for you guys, um, we're in an interesting moment, right? We're opening up. The market is, at least in the, the resale market, seems to be cooling from where we were at. Uh, there's a lot of talk about inflation. There's uh, the new stress test that I think today is the Trinifers. opening bell for the for the new uh, stress test. So we're in an interesting moment. What do you think the balance of this year looks like for the real estate market just generally and then kind of pushing out, say, next two, three, five years?
1: Listen, we've just gone through a world pandemic and the market's still strong in Vancouver. I think we can weather most things, but, you know, there's peaks and valleys and, and – um, Again, we our projects are five to six years each, typically, um, depending on where it is and, and the complications with rezoning or, or no rezoning. You know, our our, our sales strategy is, we, you know, we roll up the punches and make mi- minor modifications. But you know, from week to week, if it changes, that doesn't. We would not sleep if we worried about every week and, and slowing or or, or or picking up. Um, there certainly was pent up demand from the beginning of COVID that I think we've gone through some of that demand, but the demand continuing. We'll have a more stable r- remainder to twenty twenty one. And that's a good thing. You know, having the big ups and, and downs is is not sustainable and not something as developers and investors we like to we like to be involved in. But we're seeing still continued demand for end user, well designed, well positioned and, and well located product. And so, you know, we've got two other projects that are launching before the end of twenty twenty one and confident those will and those are end user type of product in East Vancouver will do well in those as well, in my opinion. So it's gonna be a it's gonna be a continued uh, strength in the market in twenty twenty one and into twenty twenty two for that matter.
4: Is there outdoor space in those? <laughs> lots <laughs> there you go. lots
1: of outdoor space. there's a going going theme on 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 the project. if so.
2: just just thinking about that and and I guess projects aside, if you were looking to buy something in Vancouver, you know, mom and pop investor right now thinking about where we're at. Uh, in the pandemic and market cycle and everything else, where do you think the biggest opportunity is neighborhood-wise
1: and and product type? I think it depends if it's a home or an investment. You know, I get asked this all the time from friends and and peers in the industry. You know, I'm looking at a home, what should I buy? And, and, you know, are you having a child? Yes, it's your home. It's hard to look at it as as a investment. I think it was when it's your home. And my advice is always, if you love the home, buy it, right? If you can afford it. It's it's hard to say. It's hard to look at it as an investment, in my opinion, and and most individuals probably don't look at it that way. But I think that's I think that's important when it's a home, when it's an investment. Where are the opportunities? Um, well, uh, again, shameless plug. There's, We've got five homes left at, at Habitat that are beautiful. Three. Three? Excuse me. I can't keep up with that. Yeah.
4: We yeah. did two, two deals in the yes. last – Two deals uh, this morning. D- no, last <laughs> night. It was crazy. So what's happening with this project is that we're seeing this amount of interest around future SkyTrain station. Sure. Uh, so for me, I'll jump really quickly. Anywhere along a SkyTrain station, anywhere along high rapid transportation is a great investment. That's Smart. what I'm seeing. I'm just seeing it. I'm seeing the values of when I sold these buildings years ago and what they're trading for now. And these buyers are looking for transit. Transit-oriented projects are great investments.
1: Well
4: and outdoor spaces. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, maybe
3: we'll leave it there. But uh, we do have these quick uh, five questions, the five wire uh, that we uh, lighthearted questions to end the show. Can you guys stick around for those? Absolutely. Sure. So question number one, we'll start with Jeremy. What is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver?
1: Oh, commercial street, not commercial drive, which is a great neighborhood, but commercial street. Yeah. That's, that has a, a, I have a real affinity for that street and reminds me of, um, sort of local walkable communities in, in Toronto and Montreal and other parts of the world. And Vancouver is lacking that and, and, um, commercial street is one of them. And, um, you know, it's 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 only four blocks long, but you've got uh, you've got flowers, a great bakery on that street. You know, got a boutique um, or a local commercial street cafe there. Um, the guys at Same RC and um, and Mackenzie Room are opening up a new concept that opens up, I think, in the next couple of weeks. So it's a great little street, and it's traditionally industrial that street. That's kind of evolved to a bit of a residential. So it's unique, similar to Assembly. It's a bit of a industrial residential neighborhood, so it has a lot of character.
3: Um, that's a great one. It you know what's interesting about Commercial Street is that it's for as much commercial space as there is on that street for a quiet block like that. That's really unique, right? Like usually we have the commercial space along major arterials, where it's just it's it's like a quiet walkable street with awesome places to have a coffee or do whatever. Right? Absolutely. It actually reminds me of Strathcona a little bit. Yeah, I think
1: it has yeah. some of the same similar elements, and yeah, um, yeah and and. You know, we're restoring a 1910 heritage building on that street. So I'm down there all the time, which is you know, one reason I love the street. But um, that'll right. be a nice addition to to Commercial Street as well, which is pretty cool. Awesome.
2: And right on. And and Ben, favorite neighborhood? I think you've already I, – I think I know. No, Yours actually, is...
4: surprisingly enough, it's Gastown. Oh. I love Gas. I just – I think it's it it's special. I think it's different. I love the brick. I love the roads. Um, it Become it became a little rough in the last year and a half because of COVID. Just like n- not always the pleasant uh, street to walk on, but Water Street, in my opinion, is one of the ne- the nicest streets in Vancouver. Just love the character.
2: You can't you can't uh, replicate the you Water can't. Street. That's for sure. Uh, favorite bar or restaurant, Jeremy?
1: Oh. Uh, people that know me know that I'm I'm a big foodie, so that's I can't just name one. I'm I'm going to go through a couple. You guys All got right. time?
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I think for brunch, Ubuntu over on Fraser. Uh, the owners of Ubuntu are going to be we're quite excited. Going to be doing a, a, a new concept at our Habitat project, oh. uh, which we're really excited about. Um, hasn't been named yet. Hasn't been launched. I don't know if I just let the cat out of the bag, but. We've, um, we've sort of activated the lane on that project. And so they're actually taking a space that's on the lane where we've got operable glazing. It's really, it's, it's going to be a unique space. Uh, so brunch, Ubuntu uh, for pastries, flowers on commercial, probably best local dinner would be either McKenzie room or same air sea, same owners. Um, oh, this one, you guys probably don't know, but just local East van um Yan uh, on Fraser. Love it. Cantonese Never food, seafood. It's amazing how many people you see there that are in the real estate industry just kind of slip in
2: for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. And sushi, Toshi on Main and 16th, um, coffee, timber train, off commercial, and I drinks, oh, you know – Nightingale does great cocktails uh, downtown. Ophelia in the Olympic Village, great Mezcal cocktails. Yeah. Really, uh, really good. And then uh, the new Red Wagon on East Hastings by uh, sort of east of Victoria. Right. I think it was at Red Wagon Rouge and then the brunch combined. And they do some really good cocktails there. So kind of –
2: I haven't been since they moved.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great spot. Got to check it out. Sit at the bar. Yeah. Great bartender there. And yeah, they do a good job. So – Jeez, you got to do a whole,
2: and you, <laughs> you you are, you know, you know the restaurants <laughs> in this city. Dude, you should be right. on our food
1: podcast. Love you back. Listen, when Bonnie opened it up for indoor dining the other day, I dropped everything and made reservations, right? <laughs> back to back, so.
3: Wow. <laughs> and we got to say, uh, uh, we had past guests, um, well, Saint-Marie did the design for a Format as well, too, that's right? right? Yeah. Is it? Uh, St. Yeah, Marie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Craig and the team over there. Craig yeah. and the team. And, and his restaurant, you mentioned, uh, is it uh, uh, Flowers, right? Uh, he designed uh, Flowers. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. St. Yeah. mercy he yeah. designed. Yeah. Anyways. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
2: This is going to be strange when you say Joey's. Um, <laughs> Not for <laughs> a favor.
4: Cactus Club. Fat <laughs> <laughs> um, bills uh, at Cactus Club, <laughs> I <think. laughs> I'll keep it short. So for drinks, <clears throat> I love um, the kefir. And for a restaurant... Um, uh, Anarchy on Main Street, uh, oh, no reservations. I was, I was gonna that's say a
3: That's a good fantastic. spot. Yeah, yeah, that's a good spot. That's a that's a busy busy lineup.
4: It is a it's always a busy lineup. He, the Kiefer did a a big outdoor
3: space now. They have mm-hmm. uh, like a really great patio space now. It's uh, I was
2: there um, before the last kind of lockdown um, almost accidentally, and it was pumping in that outdoor space. It was yeah, crazy. I bet. Good spot. One book you would recommend, Jeremy? Anyone who's listening.
1: So I'm reading for the second time "Happy City" by Charles Montgomery. Have you guys yeah. read
2: his book? Yeah, been we've on the sh- him on he's the been show. on the show. You? Yeah, yeah, great guy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's um, a while back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it. I think you guys sounds like you, you've you've read this his yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talks about, um, well, hence the title, Happy City, but um, I guess how to promote social ability through urban design is really the the crux of it. And right. uh, yeah, just finishing it off for the second time. So great book. Light light read, but uh, yeah, great book.
3: Definitely can see how that informs some of your thinking around developing for sure. 100%. Absolutely. Awesome.
4: The Alchemist, if you heard of that uh, yeah. uh, Brazilian author named Paulo Coelho. Yeah. Um, I read it first when I was 14, and I want to say that I've read it seven times since. Every time where you are in life through a transition or through, read it. Highly recommend. It's an easy read. It's an amazing story, fable. And every time you can relate to something um, different in the book. The The Alchemist. Alchemist.
3: Fantastic. Seven times.
4: Seven times, guys.
3: Matt, you've read On the Road a few more than that. (laughs) Twelve. Twelve times. (laughs) (laughs) Big (laughs) Kerouac (laughs) fan.
2: One piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self. Maybe we'll start with Ben.
4: Yeah. uh, You know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you're so caught up on the lows and you're like, how am I going to get out of it? And um, everything is going to be just Okay. That's all I can say. Don't get too um, riled up. And what's interesting is the lows are part of your journey. And um, once you get over the hump, look back, learn from it, try not to go back into the same hole and grow. And that's the one thing as you're younger, just like completely uh, having a hard time with those lows. Right. That's... Good advice. Yeah. Good, month, good, it, advice. It, good it also, advice. It also it
1: speaks wow. to how well you both sleep. Uh- <laughs> 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 Jeremy, um, go go away to school if you can. Yeah, yeah. I think there's um, you grow as an adult when you do that. There's every experience is new, and I, I think if if you have the opportunity to do so and can afford to do so, absolutely do it and travel. Travel, travel, travel as much as possible. It evokes and inspires so much of what we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, just get out there and travel. It's uh, Hopefully one day soon.
3: Yeah. yeah no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> Holy. Um, and last question, what is something that you have bought in the last year or two for under $1,000 that's changed your life or at least had an impact? And we'll, we'll start with Jeremy.
1: Oh, um, two things. Uh, first one I think might be free, actually. So I'm not sure if I paid for this or not. It's the Google Translate app.
2: Oh, I have that. Yeah. yeah, when you
1: travel. You know, you can hold it up. And I found out there's this, you know, the, the video function or the photo function. You can hold it up and read a menu, and it can be in Portuguese, and it translates to very broken English. Wow, That's that's transformative if you're traveling. Yeah, um, but the other thing I think that's that's trans transformed, uh, do you say transformed my life. I don't know if it's transformed yeah. my life, but how about um, revolutionized. Rev- you know what? This is, this sounds a little, little nerdy, but Dropbox app. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you pay for the additional <laughs> Dropbox, my life has been transformed from it. You know, I can be anywhere around the world or in Vancouver and send files and it's, uh, yeah, that's, it's actually transformed the business having that.
3: Right. Yeah. Dropbox and DocuSign. Oh, honestly, off the charts. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, at
2: assembly, I had a client, I think, she was the only one, or one of two people, Does who actually came, an email. came uh, down to sign yes, in person, yes. um, which was uh, yeah. Can you imagine, remember, you guys and had I, to re totally set up a desk for her yeah. because everybody <laughs> else. <laughs> oh, did we not have,
4: have it. a desk. <laughs> I want to sign my contract. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. we're gonna work with that.
3: <laughs> but you remember, like, because we were talking about when you were first at Century Twenty One years, what over a decade ago, thirteen years ago. No, no electronic signing apps, right? Oh, no, Remember, dude. you drive across the city at like 11.30 initials at, at night 1130 for initials. For a
4: change. Wow. It's like, do we yeah. really need to do this now? Yeah. <laughs> and were you
3: faxing back and
1: forth?
4: I I did have a, an electronic fax number actually that I just canceled a year ago, and the guy was just like, "Why would you cancel?" I was like <laughs> <laughs> I was like it,
2: one I, of those subscriptions. I can tell it doesn't. Yeah. I've,
4: I've, I've I've had a very hard time using it. Yeah. Like I've had it for many years, and not even. I was just like, "Look at my inbox. When's the last time a fax came in?" He's like, "Sir, I haven't seen a fax for three years." I was like, "Exactly." <laughs> yeah, you're gonna return your exactly. car phone. Uh, like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can say that. Um, It changed my life, but um, recently I bought an amazing uh, cooking set, so like pans and pots and all of that, and uh, got a little more deep into cooking, and let me tell you, that transformed- uh,
3: I bought
2: pans right before COVID, like an accidental, and it's-
4: uh, There's a difference. It's crazy how good these pans are. You can cook some amazing things without- Without burning them, or yeah. without, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, a set of uh, pots and pans, exciting.
3: Are you know? the cook at home? You've got, uh, you've got kids, right? You know you've what?
4: Got... I, w- I wasn't until recently, and yes, so I'm kind of taking more of an active role right now.
3: Nice.
2: Couple hundred units a year. Main chef on site. <laughs> ben likes a challenge. <laughs> He's gonna say, <laughs> <laughs> sleeps like a baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks so much, uh, guys, for getting in touch. So, Jeremy, how can people find out more about Hudson and and what you're up to?
1: Website, yeah, yeah, HudsonProjects.ca, yeah. yeah, perfect. So that's the easiest. That's the easiest and one of the only ways.
3: Perfect. And then Ben, of course, if people want to learn about Framework Real Estate Group,
4: just look it up. Framework
3: Real Estate. And uh, and for projects you're marketing right now, I guess I guess if people are interested in assembly.
4: They can reach out or they can go to uh, the website. They can go into Assembly Stratkona. They can look up uh, Framework Group. They can look up Hudson. There's just Google Assembly. Just
3: Google the names on this podcast. You'll You'll find everybody. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys, for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.
2: So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Jeremy Waldman, principal at Hudson Projects, and Ben Amsleg, principal at Framework
3: Real Estate Group. You know, we've known Ben for a number of years now. Uh, I've heard Jeremy's name a lot, like yeah, and seeing seen on yeah. various projects, but so good to put a face to a name. And uh, man, very interesting guy, really a lot of wisdom to impart both guys. Um, yeah, very smart, very yeah. smart. I actually really liked Ben's uh, answer
2: on why he likes the pre-sale market. Yeah. Weaving the story, weaving really like that. Yeah, and uh, I was, you know, Ben. We live in the same neighborhood. I saw him uh, last night on on a patio. Havana's patio. He was celebrating his uh, his uh, knocking
3: it out of the park on a podcast. I think. Yeah, is that, is that <laughs> right? I see Ben. Ben jogs the seawall. That guy it consistently runs. I think every day. But to learn that, like, because I see him on the seawall, like usually far, like close to English Bay on the seawall. And to learn that he's running from commercial drive is pretty impressive. Yeah. You That's know, it's one thing d- it's d- one depressing. thing to run from Cooperage <laughs> to Cooperage Park. <laughs> 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 it's another thing to go from commercial drive. So shout out to Ben who's uh, in really good shape. Um, but no, it was great having those guys on. I love that conversation and uh lots of takeaways. And and
2: honestly, there is if you if you haven't looked at and this is just you know, they've sold out the whole project basically. There's a couple units remaining, but if you haven't looked at specifically the units, the outdoor space, but the commercial space is really—it's a game changer. And I'm right. not—I'm not a booster here, just promoting the project. I really think that that kind of alleyway commercial space is such a cool idea, and it's going to totally, really change that area yeah. of Strathcona in a really interesting way.
3: Well, it's funny because Jordan McDonald, friend of the show, when he explained that what, what they're doing on Assembly. It was super exciting. And I've always kind of thought of Jordan as being like a forward-thinking guy. And then to have Jeremy on the show and him to talk about his favorite street being Commercial Street in Vancouver. It's just guys that, like, really are watching the city in a way that very few people do. Yeah. Um, and noting things. And it's so cool when two guys like that or two minds like that collaborate because you end up with a really interesting well, well, project. This is,
2: and this is actually because, you know, we had for format Craig from – from yeah. uh, St. Marie,
3: yeah, Craig from St. Marie, who owns a half dozen restaurants. Savio Volpe in the city. and uh, <laughs> whatever
2: Nick's Spaghetti House is now called, right. um, but yes. really great restaurants. But it's interesting how he's involved with Assembly, he's involved with uh, Flowers, uh, yeah, Which and he's means? and he's involved with Cressy. But it is it's not surprising that. These guys are following kind of the trends in restaurants, but also following... Like, it's not surprising, actually, just thinking aloud here that Jeremy is a foodie yeah. and that he's watching where the hippest, best restaurants are
3: going and what that looks like
2: and, and how they're kind of transforming spaces. They're
3: great guys to know. And generally speaking, you could probably reach out to any of them for a recommendation on almost anything, and you'll get a, a pretty good recommendation. No sure. kidding, no kidding. Uh, so
2: great having those guys on the show. What else do we have, Adam, before we cut for the day and get to that Jets game, we got Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. This is our website where all things real estate live, including the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We've actually had a couple people reach out uh, on the website about buying and selling commercial properties. Uh, Definitely do that. We can put you in touch with Corey and his team. But other than that, we have the live wire. This is where you're getting stats before anyone else, stats
3: that no one else has. And also, of course, we have private client services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's available on our site, VancouverRealEstatePodcast dot com. It is the best research tool out there. We've tried them all, and uh, so much great feedback with the new PCS. A lot oh. of people using. It. Sign up on our site. Again, it's free, no obligation. Great way to look for real estate in Vancouver. And Matt, how can people get in touch with you? If you want to get in touch with me to speak about
2: anything at all, 778 847 2854 or Matt at Vancouver Real Estate Or you can try
3: me at 778 866 4574 or Adam at Vancouver Real Estate And we also got that secret line info at Vancouver Real Estate Once again, guys, just a reminder check out Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast and we will be back next week with another fantastic episode. Jets and Four. Jets and Four. <laughs> <laughs> we might live to regret that one. <laughs> Take care, guys. 2,000
0: faces for radio.
1: Subscribe today. <laughs>